Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Aplastic Anemia and MDS International Foundation continuing podcast series. We're coming to you today thanks to generous support from individuals, donors, and our corporate partners, including Celgene. My name is Tricia, and today we're chatting with Dr. Corey Cutler, Medical Director, Stem Cell Transplantation Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Welcome, Dr. Cutler. Thanks very much for having me. Dr. Cutler, I know you've done so many things with this transplant program, and I'm just curious as to how you got interested in stem cell transplantation, and if you can kind of give us that idea, plus what changes you've seen over time. Well, uh, my interest in transplant stems from an interest in oncology back from my training at uh, the McGill University Health Science Center in Montreal. Uh, I had a mentor who was an oncologist and uh, who was doing some stem cell transplant at the time, and uh, I learned from him. I came to Boston to uh, train further in oncology, and there I met more mentors in transplantation, and my interest has uh, evolved since. It's 20 years now, in fact, that I'm here. Uh, The field has changed tremendously since I started. Uh, Outcomes have improved dramatically. We have uh, far improved technology in terms of matching, in terms of prevention and control of graft-versus-host disease, and some really exciting new things on the horizon in terms of dealing with uh, disease control, particularly leukemias and things like that, uh, when they recur after transplant or, in fact, preventing their recurrence after transplant. Oh, so sometimes it comes back after transplant? Unfortunately, it can. Uh, Transplant is a curative option for patients who have malignancies like MDS or acute myeloid leukemia. But unfortunately, transplant is not a guarantee of cure. And sometimes we are, in fact, faced with the prospect of relapse disease after transplant. So does that happen really often? It does happen. Uh, The frequency depends on the type of disease we're trying to treat. So the higher the risk of the malignancy, uh, the higher the rate of relapse. For some diseases like low-risk myelodysplasia, it can be as low as 20-30%. It can be as high as 50-60% for very high-risk disease. It can be even higher in some individuals with very, very adverse genetic or molecular factors, in fact. So do you screen for those genetic and molecular factors before you undertake a stem cell transplant? We do. We use the genetic and molecular characteristics to try to determine who, in fact, is the best candidate for transplant and who will benefit the most. Sometimes, however, uh, transplant is the only therapeutic option available, even though the likelihood of success might not be tremendous. It's still the preferred route of, uh, of best care. How do, how do patients feel when you, you explain all these risks to them? Are they, are they frightened? Are they confident? Uh, I would say there's a, a fair bit of uh, trepidation. I try to make sure that my patients truly understand what they're getting into when they uh, decide they're going to have a transplant. I think there's a fair bit of surprise when patients do hear that, in fact, their diseases can come back 
after transplantation. Uh, we try to be very, very honest with our patients and estimate the risk of recurrence as best we can with the information that we've got prior to the transplantation. Sometimes we don't have access to initial uh, diagnostic studies from outside centers if they haven't been performed, perhaps. Uh, and so sometimes it's a little difficult for us to accurately assess risk of relapse, but we do the best we can. Well, I, I'm sure this is a uh, this field is still evolving and growing and changing, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And in fact, we ha- are placing a ton of emphasis now on ways we can mitigate risk of recurrence after transplantation. It's one of really the field's biggest focuses uh, these days, both at our center and at another, uh, another, uh, a number of other centers uh, nationally and internationally. Are you, are you finding any insight onto mitigating risk yet, or is that still in prog- so in progress or so early? Well, certainly it is a, a process that is in progress. Uh, we've learned how to use drugs such as checkpoint inhibitors after transplantation to try to boost donor immunity. We have very novel ways of uh, doing donor lymphocyte infusions and boosting donor immunity against uh, recurrent malignancies. We have medications now that can actively treat malignancies or prevent their relapse. And we are taking a great deal of interest in some of the novel cellular therapy uh, ways to try to uh, prevent or treat relapse with uh, new cell populations such as NK cells that we previously have not harnessed before. Okay, I have I have two questions from that. Um, one is, uh, could you just touch lightly on checkpoint inhibitors? That sounds like uh, you're putting a clamp on something. What what is it really? That's a, a great way of uh, of thinking about it. So the immune system runs through a variety of checkpoints as it upregulates or ramps up an attack against a potential target. Tumor cells have learned how to uh, turn off immune cells or uh, downregulate them uh, by means of expressing a number of checkpoint inhibitors or checkpoint modifying uh, receptors on their surface. And so we have learned ways to get around uh, the tumor cell evasion by using drugs that we call checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, these are commercially available compounds. Some of them are FDA approved, and uh, they are proving to be somewhat effective in certain cases of relapse after transplantation. So, so this is, let me see if I understand this. So um, we've got a train. I'm going to say the train again. Um, we've got okay. a train um, that is chugging along in our, that's our immune system. And uh, sometimes it learns to let cancer through and the checkpoint inhibitor will put a, put a stop on it and, and just stop, the tra- stop it in its tracks so it doesn't let the cancer through? Well, the tumor cells, are, if you will, are the ones that are sort of uh, driving this train. They are learning how to tell the immune system to not attack that tumor cell uh, by expressing molecules or receptors for certain molecules to tell the immune system, this cell is okay, don't attack me. But by blocking those signals that the tumor is trying to uh, use for evasion, we're able to have the immune system actually attack the tumor cell as a target. Oh, so it's sending out a fake message, and you put the checkpoint in, and it cancels out the fake message. 
something like that, yeah. I am hoping to to kind of understand myself. And then you talked about NK cells. Now, I've heard about T cells. What is this about NK cells? So NK cells are another subset of immune cells that we carry. They are a subset of lymphocytes. Uh, we all know about T cells and some of us know about B cells, but there's a th- another few sets of lymphocyte subsets called NK cells. Uh, NK cells uh, are natural killer cells. They're out there to try to uh, directly kill things like tumor cells or infected cells. Uh, And they sort of work on a whole different set of receptors and premises than our T cells do. And so we are now really at the forefront of a whole new set of T cell bio, uh, excuse me, of NK cell biology and really learning how to use NK cells to treat tumor. Oh, so they're already equipped with all the armaments that they need to be the natural killers they are. And you want to just harness them and enhance them and turn them loose. Correct. Okay. Cool. All right. So where do the donor stem cells come from for for patients? Well, uh, we get donor cells from a few places. Uh, We can uh, either take them from the bloodstream. So we all have stem cells that float around in small, small numbers in our bloodstream, but we have machines that can filter those stem cells out and we can collect them for transplant. We also can collect stem cells directly from the bone marrow itself. And then finally, uh, we do have stem cells banked in the form of umbilical cord blood. So when babies are born, the uh, placenta and the umbilical cord blood represent a, a very rich source of stem cells that we can collect. And we have, um, we have several cord blood banks where we can call these banks and simply order units that have already been collected and preserved for use. Let me ask about the umbilical cord stem cells. Is it difficult for those to match with a patient uh, as difficult as it is for if they were to go and get um, from the normal stem cell donation? Is this a different, does it, does it have a different match than the general public? So actually, it's a little bit easier to match umbilical cord blood stem cells. And the reason is that the immune cells that come along with those stem cells are far more immature because they're coming from a naive infant, if you will. And so we don't actually have to be as stringent when we match umbilical cord blood to, uh, in comparison to when we match from an adult donor. This is very important because there are some people out there who do not have either siblings or matched unrelated donors in the, uh, in the registries. And for those individuals, we are forced to use either umbilical cord blood or half-matched siblings, what we call haploidentical transplants for these people. Do you ever combine those two? In one transplantation? Uh, That is done experimentally. Um, It's not something we currently do at our center, but there are centers in this country that are looking at that. The different stem cell sources have different advantages and disadvantages, and so one of the strategies is to harness the advantages of each of those uh, and then see if uh, we can get a better transplant overall. The problem is, is that it becomes very expensive 
to be using stem cells from multiple sources. I see. That makes a whole lot of sense. And and after a transplant, I keep hearing about the first 100 days. The first 100 days after a transplant. Is this a milestone, no matter the disease that's being treated with a stem cell transplant? It is a milestone. It's somewhat artificial. Uh, it's historical in that we used to divide... Uh, the complications of transplants such as graft versus host disease into an acute and chronic version based on when they occurred from transplantation. And 100 days was the very arbitrary defining line between acute and chronic GVHD. Despite us not using that time difference for differentiation of GVHD, we still use 100 days as a pretty good milestone for our patients. It's often when we start to relax some of the restrictions we put upon them uh, we do things like we taper immunosuppressive medications, et cetera. So it's a, it's a nice thing for the patients to, uh, to look out for. It's their first 100 days, and, and if they surpass that in good shape, then they're, then they're uh, in better shape for the next 100. Yes, I've seen a lot of celebrations on social media that people have when they reach their first 100 days. And we're careful to applaud that. Yeah, it's a nice milestone for patients to hit. Biologically, it, it doesn't mean a lot. But it gives them so much confidence, I think, when they hit that Correct. 100 days. It's a nice number that we can all access, I think. That's absolutely correct. Um, so you were uh, talking about uh, graft-versus-host disease, which is, some people say, GVHD to abbreviate. Can you talk a little bit about um, how GVHD appears in a patient and what you can do about it and if it's many types or just one type? Sure. So we we differentiate graft-versus-host disease into two separate clinical syndromes. We call one acute graft-versus-host disease and the other chronic GVHD. Acute GVHD tends to happen earlier after transplant and affects three organs, the skin, the intestinal tract, and the liver, whereas chronic GVHD tends to occur a little longer after transplant, four to six months out, and is a much more heterogeneous disease, and it can affect a number of different organ systems, including the mouth, the eye, the skin, the GI tract, the liver, muscles and joints, uh, and a variety of other uh, less affected organs. Is there treatment for any of the GVHD? Um, there is, yeah. So we, we actually try to prevent graft-versus-host disease, so all patients get some form of GVHD prophylaxis or prevention strategy. And then should GVHD occur, we tend to use immunosuppressive medicines such as steroids and other drugs in, those, in that family to try to treat active GVHD. Are there, are there types that are harder to treat or types that are easier to treat? Well, I don't think there are types that are easier or harder. Unfortunately, any time that GVHD becomes resistant to steroids, uh, that becomes a harder uh, and more dangerous uh, scenario. Uh, on the acute side, um, GVHD of the intestinal tract is typically a little more dangerous than the other forms. But uh, we don't take any form of GVHD lightly. 
So it sounds like that's something that's still being researched and developed in, in, I mean, even though you have some strategies to prevent and some techniques to treat, it sounds like that's still being researched. Yes, very actively. And in fact, that's the area of focus of, uh, of my research career uh, is ways of preventing and treating both acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease. We're actually at a very interesting crossroads in our field right now. We have um, a number of novel biologic pathways and pharmacologic agents that we have at our disposal uh, for the prevention and treatment of GVHD. Uh, I'm very proud to say that in the last 12 months, we've had two drugs approved for the treatment of acute and chronic graft-versus-host disease. These are the first two drugs ever approved with a GVHD indication, and we probably have several more along the way. What's nice is that our colleagues and uh, uh, in the pharmaceutical industry have finally recognized that GVHD is something that we can hopefully prevent and uh, and treat effectively, and so the uh, pharmaceutical industry is now uh, focusing their attention on this field, and we have uh, we have lots of work ahead of us in terms of testing and uh, prioritizing compounds for use in GBHD. Wow, two approvals. Um, that's wonderful. Uh, yes. Do you um, do you want to do you have the generic names of those that you could sure. share? So the first drug that was approved was ibrutinib, and that was approved for chronic graft versus host disease. And then more recently, ruxolitinib was approved for the treatment of steroid refractory acute graft-versus-host disease. Awesome. Awesome. I wanted to give that because there will be patients out there who live in um, getting, they're getting their treatment at a community cancer center, and they might not be able to see their hematology oncology specialist very often. They might sure. be interested in in prompting uh, a little more research into this on the on the part of their uh, medical team. So the last question I have for you, uh, Dr. Cutler, is let me phrase it this way: I know that you care deeply about your patients, and you probably have a lot of interaction with them, and you've learned from them, and I'm sure that they've. They've taught you, and you've taught them. And so, what is the one thing that you would like for patients to remember or know about uh, transplantation and GVHD? Hmm. Or about being a patient, considering this? Um, I mean, I think the most important thing for patients to know about transplant is that this is still an evolving field. It is far from a perfect science. Uh, we are doing our best, and the differences in transplant outcomes today versus 5, 10, 15 years ago are tremendous, and we hope that these improvements in outcome uh, keep going over time. So when So you're saying that maybe if they talk to somebody who had... Their second cousin, twice removed, had a had a, a stem cell transplant twenty years ago, and it failed. That that has nothing to do with today's uh, transplantation protocols. That's absolutely right. <laughs> Great. 
Well, thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom and your knowledge that you've shared with patients today. This will be uh, staying up on iTunes, Google Play, and on our website for a very long time to come. (laughs) And uh, I hope to update this in the future as progress continues to be made. So I thank you so much, Dr. Cutler, for sharing um, all your knowledge about stem cell transplantation and DVHD for patients and families today. My absolute pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for being with us again. Remember, you can find out more about all types of bone marrow failure diseases on our website at aamds.org, through social media, and you can chat with your peers online at marrowforums.org. We'll see everybody next time. Bye-bye.